Well, good morning again. You have been asking great questions in a series called Q&A, where several months ago we asked you to ask us questions, and you did, and we spent a few months getting ready for that and went into God's Word and got answers. And today, as we're getting closer to the end of the series, we're in a, an exciting time where you're going to hear answers to several of the questions that you asked. I want to say good morning to the people at our Six Forks location. Uh, we're nearing the end of this series, and we're glad that they could join us. In Proverbs chapter 4, it says that if it costs you everything, get knowledge and get understanding. And that's part of the, the driving force behind this series, is to help people get some knowledge and some understanding about how God works in our lives, how, how God speaks through His Word, how God works through His church, and how God works through other people. The Bible is clear that wisdom and understanding from God leads us to a better life. And so when we laid all these questions out, it was... It was very apparent that we were not going to be able to answer every single question you asked. So we kind of together and we came up with the ones that really needed to be done a whole message about and then the ones that we can kind of just answer in one day. And that's what we're going to do today. Today's going to be done in kind of an interview format. I have one of my good friends. His name's Dan Blazer. Dan, if you could come on up. Dan is... A lifetime student of the Bible. He's a very good friend of mine. He's on my pastoral leadership council. He's a Duke professor. He's a very wise person. He knows God. He knows God's word. And he's going to share some of his wisdom with us today as we seek to go into God's word and get some answers. So, Dan, thanks for being here today and answering some of these questions. Donnie, it's really good to be here. Um, I wanted to start out by saying I'm not a theologian, I'm not a philosopher. I'm like many people at LifePoint, I'm searching. I've uh, just been searching a little longer than most. <laughs> and so, uh, and I'm still searching. And I think, you know, we never will understand everything until we get to heaven. Uh, and so, uh, but it's exciting to me to look in God's word and try to understand uh, some of the things that really puzzle us about the world around us. Well, let's jump, let's jump right into the questions. Uh, a lot of the questions were, were scientific. Um, many of them had to do with specific scriptures, and we're going to deal with mostly most of those today. But the first one is one that probably a lot of people have, especially college students, because uh, mostly uh, secular university professors are going to fall down on one side of this issue, and that's the issue between uh, micro and macro evolution, kind of explain the differences. And the way that question was asked was, what's the difference between microevolution and macroevolution? Let's start with microevolution, which, by the way, Darwin never actually saw himself, but it's something that has been seen since that time. And I'll start out by saying this is actually a fact and not a theory, which I want to distinguish from macroevolution, which I think is a theory. Uh, microevolution perhaps can best be illustrated rather than trying to define it by going right to the place where Darwin did a lot of his work, and that's in the Galapagos Islands. These islands are pretty harsh environments, and yet there's a wide variety of, uh, of wildlife on these. And one variety are finches. 
And these islands go through climate changes, not just one day or one season, but actually changes that occur over a much longer period of time, let's say three or four years. They may go through, four, go through three or four years of drought, and then they may go through three or four years where there's quite a bit of rain. And these finches multiply fairly quickly, and when things get dry, there's a variety of, uh, of these finches. Some have beaks that are better able to, uh, to get food when the, the foliage is dry, and others have beaks that are better able to get food when it's a wet area. And so when it's a dry period for three or four years, the finches that have beaks that can get the dry food predominate. And then when it becomes wet, then the finches that have the beaks that are uh, adapted to the wet actually will predominate for a period of time. And this is actually the process of natural selection on this very minor uh, factor about just sort of the size and shape of finch's beak, which is something that would be hard for any just normal person to see. Macroevolution, in contrast, it are much larger changes over what is theorized to be a much longer period of time. And this is where a lot of debate obviously comes in because many scientists accept macroevolution as being fact just like they would accept microevolution as being fact. Um, and again, there's a lot of debate about this. I, I would say that there are a couple of things that uh, I think Christians can keep in mind uh, that might help them not to sort of feel like they're totally trapped by scientists. But for one, uh, God could create us as individuals in any way he wanted to. And so he could create us where it looked like we evolved uh, from, uh, let's say, a higher ape. In fact, we do share about 97% of our DNA with the higher apes. But that doesn't mean that we necessarily evolved from them. It just means that may be the way that God uh, created uh, hum uh, animals themselves. Another thing I think to keep in mind that's always been sort of a, a problem for those who see evolution occurring as the only thing that's sort of driving life, and that is intelligent design, what people have called intelligent design, easily illustrated, you know, how, how did I come to have an eye, just like the eye that I have? Um, it, you, how do you imagine various steps occurring that would lead an individual to have an eye? Well, I think in summary, there are two things I would have people keep in mind. Number one, uh, macroevolution is a th theory. Microevolution, I think, is a fact. But number two, and the most important thing to remember, is we are created beings. Uh, that's what we read in Scripture, and we can't get away from that, and we should not try to get away from that. Well, another question that's very much related, uh, especially to, to the macroevolution question, uh, is this idea of how was the earth created? How did this whole thing come to be? And a person asked the question, can you explain the gap theory of creation? Wasn't that on everybody's mind this morning when you got up? Like, <laughs> man, that gap theory of creation, how does that work? And here we have somebody who's going to explain it to us. Well, uh, first off, interestingly, the gap theory of creation actually had nothing to do with evolution. Uh, it when it actually was about 50, maybe to 75 years older than the theory of evolution that Darwin proposed. The gap theory had came about when Christians who became geologists and began to study the earth were having a great difficulty in trying to understand why the earth looked so old, and yet it said 
we were created in seven or six days, and God rested on the seventh day. And so this theory emerged suggesting that there was a gap between Genesis chapter 1, excuse me, verse 1, and Genesis verse 2. And that, that millions, perhaps billions of years passed during that time. And then after verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1, then the six days of creation just sort of marched step through in the usual 24-hour way. There are other people who say, well, maybe what we have are each of the days are much longer. In other words, as Peter suggested, a day is a thousand years or a million years, and a million years is a day. Again, we're looking back in time. All of these are theories that are trying to explain things we see, perhaps through the eyes of a scientist, but also through the eyes of a Christian. Yeah, and it's interesting. When, when we're talking about evolution and creation, it really comes down to faith, no matter which side people fall on whether it's a secular side that, okay, we, we evolved from this little organism that just got bigger and bigger and then an ape and then us, or whether you believe what the Bible says about how humans got here and were created by God, all of it is by faith. We don't have like this secret video that, you know, we only show some people that, that shows how it all happened. It all comes down to faith. In the Bible, it says without faith, it's impossible to please God. And when it comes to questions like this, it's really good to dig in and and see why different people believe different things and, and how you can form your opinion. But at the end of the day, it's on faith. Faith that God did exactly what he said he did. Some of the questions we had, Dan, had to do with specific scriptures. Uh, I guess when people are reading during their quiet times or, or just picking up scripture uh, and starting to read it, there are some that are kind of difficult to understand and they seem like they might say something they don't say and it, it can be a little difficult and one of those scriptures is in, in Luke 14 verse 26 and that has to do with uh, when Jesus is telling his followers what it takes to follow him and he says if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother his wife and children his brothers and sisters yes even his own life he cannot be my disciple. So the obvious question from that is, why would Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the God of love, say that you need to hate somebody in order to follow him? Donnie, I think the first thing we need to recognize here is that Jesus taught sometimes by making very sharp contrast. And so he would sort of overstate a particular situation in order to make a point. The point he was making in this particular passage is you have to put me first. Uh, if you say you're a Christ follower, if you're going to follow me, then you have to put me first. You can't put your family first. You can't put other things first. However, we have much evidence in Scripture that Jesus, far from ever saying that we needed to hate or despise or not consider the concerns of our family and our friends, Jesus didn't teach that. Jesus taught, first, that we should love children. He himself, when the disciples were trying to scurry the children away, said, no, let the children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. He loved children. He enjoyed having children around. When Jesus was on the cross and had the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders, and was going through extreme agony and extreme pain. And 
could easily have only been thinking about himself and his relationship with God, his father, and trying to work this out. Why is he there? He even goes so far as to say, uh, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He looks down. He sees his mother. He sees John. He says, John, take care of my mother. And so he was even thinking about others, in this particular case, his mother, his flesh and blood mother, at the time that he was uh, in the greatest agony of all. So I don't think we look upon that passage as being hate. and the user. In fact, the word that's used, the Greek word is misio, and this particular word can mean, and I think does mean in this particular situation, love less. In other words, if you don't love your family and everyone less than you love me, then you can't follow me. He's not saying don't to despise these people, uh, don't care about them. He's just saying you have to love me most. And so Jesus is just saying I, I, you need to put me first. That's right. I need to be above mm-hmm. and have mm-hmm. dominance in your life. Yeah. Uh, another scripture that's, that's about the, the topic of hate that I've had people ask me before comes from Romans 9.13, which is a, a quote from the book of Malachi chapter 1 in the Old Testament, where it says, where God says, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. So could you explain to us why the Bible says that God hated this person Esau? A couple of things here, Donnie. I think first, this passage, Romans 9 through 11, is one of the most complicated passages to understand, I think, in the New Testament, perhaps in the entire Bible. And I don't believe that I understand it anywhere close to what is, uh, what may be really there. Paul is talking in this passage about the election of Israel as a nation, that it will be brought back somehow in the future into the fold. And he's trying to describe that. And it's something many Christians, I think, have struggled for hundreds and thousands perhaps of years in trying to understand exactly what Paul means by that. So this is set in the middle of a, of a passage that is very difficult. I think there are a couple of things here that might help us understand this passage, though. The first is that... Um, we are, it wasn't just by chance that you and I are saved and somebody else is lost. It's because God says, by grace, I save people. And God wishes everyone to be saved. That We are elected in the sense that God has said, by grace, you're saved. In the Old Testament, God elected a nation, Israel. It wasn't the natural nation for him to elect. Esau was the oldest son of Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, was the youngest son. So the lineage should have come down through Esau. But God chose Israel for Jacob to be the individual through who the lineage came. As you know, there was conflict between Esau and Jacob. Later, that conflict was resolved between Esau and Jacob, and they actually... Uh, made peace, and we have no evidence that God continued to punish Esau himself. But the people of Esau, his descendants, ended up being arch enemies of the uh, of the Israelites. They were the Edomites. They lived east of the Jordan River. And I thought it might be helpful just to read briefly a passage from a book that we rarely look at, and that's the book of Obadiah. And he talks about these people, the Edomites, which are the descendants of Esau. And he says that the pride of your heart has deceived you. 
you who live in the rocks in the cleft of the rocks and make your home in the heights, you who say to yourselves, who can bring me down to the ground? I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And then on over a little bit more, he says, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. He's not talking here about the actual Esau and the actual Jacob. He's talking about the nation of Edom, and he's talking about the nation of Israel. And so this is a, a way that he uses names of individuals to describe conflicts between nations that took place in the past and the conflict specifically relating to his chosen nation, Israel, and the nation that was warring against Israel. Okay. So how does that, how does that relate to our, like today? Like, uh, you know, the, the Israel and Edom, and that didn't make sense with Jacob and Esau. How does that relate to us today? Well, I think God... You know, we, we might think, well, God hates sin. God hates sinners. So God must hate this person over here who's not going to church every Sunday. And it's very easy for us to sort of assume that this gets down to a, a, a very personal, specific situation. Or God loves me. I do believe God loves me. But I think God loves Christians. And so I think we need to realize that we, as Christians, form a group. And there are individuals in groups that war against us today. And I think we need to keep that in mind. We are, we're not immune to those who hate us and who would like to see us destroyed. And the comfort we have is that God will not let those peoples who wish to see us as Christians destroyed, destroy us. Another question uh, that had to do with salvation, a couple questions uh, that had to do with it. Uh, first one came from Acts 16.31 where the disciples were beginning to share the message of Christ with a world that needed to hear it. And when they would go out and tell people about Jesus and they were establishing the first church, uh, they, people would make responses. And at one point in verse 31 of chapter 16, the disciples replied to these people they were speaking to. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Well, if you just read that one sentence, it does beg the question, can children and family members just be saved by association? And that's exactly the point here, and that is it's very difficult to understand some scriptures if you just take the one scripture and don't understand the context in which it's occurring. This particular scripture is occurring. Paul and Silas are in jail. Uh, there's a jailer watching over him. From what we understand about uh, Roman culture, the jailer probably lived near the jail and perhaps even in the jail along with his family. Uh, a great earthquake occurs. The jail doors are opened. The jailer is fearing that he's going to, uh, to uh, that these prisoners are going to get away and he will be executed for letting them get away. He starts to want to kill himself. And Paul and Silas says, no, wait. And they preach to him and he believes and then he immediately takes Paul and Silas into the family. Perhaps the family was even around during some of this. We don't know exactly what happened. But I think the key passage here, Donnie, in sort of putting the, bringing this story together is verse 34. And it talks about how the jailer brought them into his house, in other words, his own personal house from the jail, set a meal before them, and the whole family was filled with joy. And I didn't say just because they were baptized or just because they happened to be saved by chance. It says 
because they had come to believe in God. And so it's important for us to read these passages in context. Good. So the whole family, it wasn't just the jailer and then his whole family got saved because of him. It was they each believed That's right. themselves. Another question that has to do with salvation. Uh, once a person accepts the message of Christ and follows him, someone asked the question, can a Christian, a Christ follower, ever lose that salvation? Many years ago, uh, I think it was in the seventh grade, uh, I went to a, uh, a carnival. It was actually in Memphis, Tennessee. I'd gone with a class uh, uh, trip, and I was going along the midway, and there were some hucksters there, the people who tried to guess your weight or guess your age, et cetera. And so one had this little game. I can't even remember exactly what the game was, and I was going to win this big doll or something, a bear that I'd give to my girlfriend, or who I thought was my girlfriend. Uh, and um, so he said, well, let me hold a dollar and says, you just do this and then I'm going to give you the bear and I tried it and I couldn't make it work. And he said, let me have another dollar and I ended up giving ending five dollars before I kind of figured out what was going on. And I went, I went home that, not home, I went to the hotel that evening. I could not sleep, did not sleep all night. I said, I'm going to hell. I've lost five dollars of my family's good earned money. I, don't, I do not know, I know how I'm going to get through this. And I truly believe that I committed a sin and I was going to go to hell. And I think what I've learned, hopefully, in the many years since then, is we're not walking a thin line that occasionally if we sort of step over on the wrong side, going to say, I've got you. Or if we happen to be, you know, we happen to, you know, say a curse word and then we have a heart attack, it doesn't mean we're going to go to hell. Uh, that's not the way God works. Uh, he, is, he's, he realizes we're fallible people. He realizes we're people who make mistakes. And because we make mistakes, uh, there's certainly that. So we're, 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 we're walking a very wide line. On the other hand, I think we have to remember that because God has saved us through his grace and not through any work that we have, that does not mean we can just do anything we want to do. That does not show a love for God. I truly believe that Christians can turn their backs on God, God, which is something very different than somebody who sort of makes an inadvertent mistake. So our salvation is not something we can lose like our car keys. No. But it is something that a person can consciously reject yes. and walk away from God. Someone asked a question about soldiers and they acknowledge they know it's a sin to kill, but what about when a soldier is on the battlefield and he kills an enemy who is a human being? This is a tough one, and it certainly has a lot of political overtones, and it gets really close to home for many individuals. Uh, there's no question when we read about Jesus and we read about what he taught about how we're to relate to our fellow human beings, he taught a peaceable kingdom. He said, love your enemies. He said, turn the other cheek. Uh, except for one instance in the temple when he overturned the money changer's uh, table, uh, we never see any evidence of violence. And he gave himself up to the soldiers when he could have called down the angels from heaven uh, to be crucified. But interestingly, on the other hand, one of the individuals who Christ praised the most in Scripture was a man who sent a servant to him and 
sent the message saying, uh, would you heal one of my other servants? And uh, Jesus said, I'll come. And the message came back, said, there's no need for you to come. All you have to do is speak the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said of this individual, I've not seen this kind of faith anywhere in Israel. The man was a centurion. He was a soldier. Probably killed people. Probably still would be called upon to command other individuals. The first individual who was a Gentile to be baptized from what we read in Scripture in the book of Acts is a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion. He was a soldier of the Roman army. He certainly had orders and responsibility to use force if necessary, perhaps kill someone in order uh, to maintain order. We read nowhere in Scripture that either Jesus with the centurion he encountered or Peter in the centurion he encountered asked them to change their profession because they became Christians. So, Donnie, I think there are two traps we can fall into. One trap would be what I call the pacifist trap. We may, as a lifestyle, say we could not pick up a gun, we cannot hurt someone. But if we feel like we need to go out and spit and on someone or mock someone or curse someone because they're going to war as soldiers, as happened many times during the 1960s, thankfully that's not happening nearly so much today, I, think that's, I don't think we can justify that from Scripture. On the other hand, if we very much believe that serving in the military and taking up a gun is the way that we need to behave in order to protect our country, and that's something that's very important to us, I don't think that individual can condemn an individual who is a pacifist and says, I cannot take up a gun. So I think we've got to realize that both individuals who say they could not serve in the military and individuals who serve in the military can be saved. Right. So it's a, that's a sensitive question, sensitive topic that people who follow Christ uh, see it both ways. Yes. And the important thing is the respect of each other and how you treat each other. And I think Scripture kind of leaves room to look at it either way. Mm-hmm. Another uh, topic that someone asked a question about, very sensitive topic, even more so than one about soldiers, uh, is about the end of life. Uh, someone asked the question, can we choose when the end of life is? And specifically, do people who commit suicide go to heaven? And this is a very tough question. I, my profession, for those of you who don't know, I'm a psychiatrist. And so this is something that I have and do deal with. Um, first thing I would say is suicide is perhaps one of the greatest tragedies that anyone or family can face. And so when you face such a tragedy, I'm very concerned that we become too judgmental in those situations. And so this is a situation where I, I don't even try to read the mind of God. But there are a couple of things that might help here, Donnie, that that I I do know. One is that having some experience with individuals who've made serious suicide attempts and individuals who eventually do commit suicide, I think suicide in the vast majority of cases is not a well-thought-out logical decision by individuals. I think it's an impulsive act. I think uh, I've had patients who have made serious suicide attempts, who survived those attempts, 
and who tell me I have no idea what made me do that. And by the grace of God, they were saved. There are other individuals, I am certain, who had no idea what they were doing because they were so depressed and their mind became so clouded that they made a suicide attempt and unfortunately that suicide attempt was successful. So I think we have to recognize that suicide is one of those acts that's not most of the time a rational act and I have some comfort in knowing that I have a God who I think can forgive and can understand the kind of pain that occurs when somebody is suffering uh, from a severe depression, which often is the thing that will lead to a suicide attempt. So the important thing is, number one, something we don't understand, you know, unless we've gone through it or are going through it. Uh, and, and two is that a person have that knowledge of that saving grace of Jesus Christ in their life. And by that, we can find comfort. I, I think that I think that's exactly right. And I think that... Uh, this is one where I'm very happy for God to be the judge because I have a loving God. <laughs> That's right. The last question uh, someone asked, the last question we're going to deal with today is, do bad people get to go to heaven? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> because I think we're all bad. Uh, you know, Romans 3.23 says, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And I think uh, we have so many passages from Jesus where he says, you know, before you start pulling that speck out of the other person's eye, you better take that log out of your own eye. We all sin. Uh, so, yes, bad people can go to heaven. But it gets back to something, Donnie, we were talking about before, and that is that does that mean we can just sin freely? And very soon after this particular passage, we read in, in Romans 6, 1 and 2, it might be good just for us to take a look at that passage just for a second. Um, let me get over to it just a moment. Um, where it says, what do we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And so I think Paul recognizes, and I think the scriptures are very clear, that uh, we're all bad. None of us earn our salvations. We're saved by grace. But that does not give us license to do whatever we want to. We have to work hard at being the best people we can for Christ. And that is working hard at being the best we can for Christ is what God asks us to do. He doesn't ask us to be perfect. He doesn't ask us to be sinless because that's impossible for any of us to do. But because of his grace and his love, each of us, someday when this life is over, we're going to be able to stand before God completely clothed in the righteousness, the right standing of Jesus Christ. And that's how bad people get to go to heaven. Well, you asked great, great questions in this entire series. Some that we weren't able to get to. Most we, we hope we were able to answer them. If there was a question you had that you didn't get answered, just come up and uh, talk to me, and I'll either answer it or point you to someone who can. But never think that it's about just getting all the right answers, because we'll never have all the right answers. We'll never be able to have you know, a, a complete, exhaustive list of all the questions in life and have them answered, and then say, now I can trust God because I've got all my questions answered. 
One of the songs that we sang early in the service said, I believe if I feel it or not. And that's where I would hope to see everybody get who's wanting to connect with God through Christ is that you're going to believe in the message of Christ whether you have all the answers or whether or not you feel it. We went through this series because we felt like there were significant questions that people have that they want answered and will help them connect with God in a whole new way. So thanks for your attention. Thanks for listening. And thank you for submitting the questions. Let's pray.